0: The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.
1: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 166 is something like, What is the appropriate role for religion in society? And we read Spinoza's Tractatus Theological Politicus, published in 1670, chapters 12 through 20, and a bit of the Tractatus Politicus, published posthumously in 1677. To get the reading and more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Meyer, free to think and speak as I please, so long as it does not interfere with the welfare of the state. In Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in
2: Cambridge, Massachusetts.
3: This is Dylan Casey, a real agitator for freedom in Middleton, Wisconsin.
1: All right. So we had said we were going to cover the first half of the Tractatus last time, and I was hoping that that would be the religion half, and I think we got biblical criticism out of the way here, but we've got in this half another four or five chapters wrapping up the discussion of religion before we get into the heavy-duty politics stuff, which itself is not like a straight-up political treatise, but spends a good deal of time going back and discussing politics in the ancient state of Israel. So it's not a clean break between the theologico for the first half and the politico for the second half. So yeah, we're doing the rest right now. For this one, we thought we tried something a little different. We want to make sure that everybody, even if you didn't listen to the last episode just recently, knows what's going on here, so we're going to have Wes give a much longer-than-usual introductory summary, and then we'll have our normal discussion. So go ahead, Wes.
2: In the previous episode, we saw Spinoza trying to convince us that faith is not necessarily in conflict with reason, and that it's not necessarily in conflict with the state. And one of the big stumbling blocks for both of those things is all the absurd stuff that's in the Bible, that the prophets say is true that is conflicting from one prophet to another, that creates doctrinal conflicts that people fight over. They treat it as sort of a philosophical issue. Does God have hands? Doesn't he? All sorts of things that really make it hard to have a state, used to conflict, and also it's really hard to reconcile with science. Towards the end of our last reading, he spent a lot of time casting doubt on the provenance of the Bible, the books in the Bible, and their authenticity a lot of it is corrupt basically and can be discarded so as we get in chapter 12 he's gonna say well what is divine or sacred about scripture then if it has all those problems and he's gonna say well it's not the literal the word of god doesn't mean just the stuff that's on the page or a certain set of books it's really just a kind of basic foundation it's not anything fancy philosophically it's just that god exists that he's omnipotent, that he provides for all things, and then there are moral precepts that follow from that. So ultimately, the moral precept is just that all that's required of us is that we be obedient to God, which means loving our neighbor. It's fine to believe any of those prophets, any of those sort of fabrications you like, any sort of trapping, any different formal religious practice, as long as it communicates, as long as it's a means to encouraging obedience to God and to the moral law, which, again, is to love one's neighbor and to act on that, to do good works. You really don't have to know a lot philosophically about God, again, just that he's a supreme being who loves justice and charity and that he ought to be emulated in that. Consequently, it'll turn out that there's no, it'll say, interaction between faith and theology, and there's no conflict between it. That conflict can only arise if you treat theology as if it's something philosophical and something that has to do with the truth when really it's just a mechanism to instill obedience in people. In chapter 15, he'll say that philosophy and theology have their own sort of separate but equal and harmonious domains. The second part of this begins with chapter 16. That's where we get into the political stuff proper. That's sort of the natural dividing line between the uh, more religiously focused stuff that comes before so the previous stuff is focused on the extent to which we have the freedom to philosophize given revelation and given scripture. We found out that we have a lot of freedom to philosophize because most of revelation has nothing to do with philosophy and it just gives us this very minimal idea of God and the idea that we ought to obey him. But now the question is, well, how far does freedom of thought go in the best kind of state? And then he's going to get into a whole state of nature account that's very reminiscent of. Hobbes. He's going to define natural right, and it's not going to be the sort of thing that we're used to in Locke, where there's, in a state of nature, we have a right to our property and not to be harmed. For Hobbes and for Spinoza, natural right is just what we have the power to do. It's just what we naturally have the capability to do, and so we're naturally appetitive and in a state of nature before there's such a thing as a government. Not reasonable beings And in that sense, we have the right to kill, we have the right to be fraudulent, we can do anything we want. But, because that's miserable, or nasty, brutish, and short, as Hobbes called it, it's more beneficial to form a society and live by reason. And we do that according to a kind of agreement. This agreement involves a promise, and for Spinoza, any promise can be broken if it turns out not to be in our interest. So this sort of agreement requires on something super added to it. And that is the surrender of our power, which is our right to some greater sovereign power that can basically compel us to obey. And it will turn out in the remaining parts of the readings that this sovereign power has a lot of power. We're bound to obey it in matters both civil and religious, even when the sovereign and the sovereign, by the way, in a democracy would be the people. So it doesn't have to be a monarch, But even if they're giving us absurd commands and even if they're impious, piety actually requires us to obey them because the public interest really takes precedent all. That's not to say that the sovereign is not without limits. It turns out that Spinoza will think that freedom of speech and thought, those are the really the two things that cannot be transferred to the sovereign. We can transfer almost all of our power. And all of our right to the sovereign, but not those things. And that's because our minds can't be absolutely controlled. And because the really the ultimate purpose of a state is freedom, is to encourage the use of reason and free thinking, which is what allows us to be free.
3: I think Wes covered the arc pretty well. There are a couple things that stood out to me. You know, one was that democracy for him is by far the best choice for a government. It's also the most natural choice because it is the freest for each person but it's also a lesser of two evils where the one evil is the submission that you have to the sovereign in the democracy versus the lack of security and prosperity that you have in the state of nature and that sort of was emblematic of me of this kind of back and forth that he has between talking about the positive parts about government as it being about our freedom, and then the sort of negative parts of it as being the sort of high stakes of what you're giving up. And the other part that resonated with me on that was that he's constantly fighting for this middle road, you know, seeing that rulers could become tyrants and the ruled can become rebels. And he wants to set it up so that you can have rulers who are not tyrants and the ruled who are not rebels. The other thing that stood out to me that Wes didn't cover that i want to make sure we get to is like the status of government with respect to human beings so on the one hand justice is not subject to the good like in plato and also government is not natural it does not create peoples the nature does not create peoples and so i wanted to make sure we talk about that which is you know contra aristotle
0: about you Seth? Well, I got kind of caught up. The last thing that I attended to before the recording was the reissue of episode 24. So I got kind of wrapped up in the metaphysics. In the latter half of this work, he makes a point of saying that mind and, and matter are not distinct. And yet, when I listened to episode 24, us talking about it, we spent a tremendous amount of energy discussing how they were parallel from a causation perspective but the things that i would like to talk about specifically tonight is this notion of the universal religion and what the key dogma of the universal religion is and what can be essentially derived from that and this notion that he has about i know that we're supposed to be getting onto the political piece but i'm still very fascinated by the the universal religion aspect
1: Well, what's important about the universal religion aspect, it seems to be, I think, the role that it plays in the politics. I saw this as an interesting take on the is-ought distinction because he's a determinist. And so, as we said last time, if you talk about laws, really, you kind of have to be talking about causal deterministic laws. So how is it that we can have morality, which tells us to do something that we wouldn't ordinarily do? And he's in fact giving a contrast in his view with earlier uh, natural law theorists. So, this is interesting. We just had this discussion with Stuart Humphrey where we contrasted in science having descriptive physical laws with having a teleological description of entities. In other words, the entity has a nature and so it tends towards something and how those are two different kinds. But this notion of natural law that was very big. In Spinoza's time, or slightly before, definitely, in, it's there in Hobbes, uh, apparently came out of the scholastics, right? The people interpreting Aristotle was sort of something between them. It's kind of like if somebody says homosexuality is unnatural. Well, they can't mean that it doesn't actually happen because it, it does, you know, by causal <laughs> physical things cause it to happen. What they mean to say is something teleological that, like, by the normal functioning, the functioning, as far as I understand its functioning, uh, you know, people's sex is for creating babies. And so homosexuality doesn't do that. And so therefore it's unnatural. So that's the way they're drawing the is ought distinction. And so if you look at Hobbes or Rousseau or some of these other folks, yes, you get explicit laws when you get a state together, but there's still some way you can talk about in the state of nature, there being a natural law, you know, in other words, a way that the law of reason that persists in the state of nature that maybe you should do something if you're acting according to reason. And Spinoza has kind of a a strange take on that. I think you could interpret him as giving a version of that, but he explicitly says no. All that happens in the state of nature is just physical causal stuff, and it's not until society gets together and the ruler starts issuing edicts that morality comes into being and therefore the ruler is the controller of morality, really. But at the same time, in our whole episode 25, talking about ethics, we got into like what Spinoza actually thinks is the right way to be, which is to be at peace with your fellow citizens. And this is something that comes right out of reason, very much like Kant's categorical imperative, as we made that comparison last time. So yeah,
2: in a state of nature, for Spinoza, if you take human beings before they have reason, and I think he sees that as sort of... I'm sorry, is that before they have reason? Is the state of nature before reason? I didn't think so. Yes. So he equates not having reason and not having a state or society. So before, when we're really just like animals, you can't say that murdering someone is wrong, and that's the radical thing that follows from this. But you can make sense of that pretty easily, right? It wouldn't make sense to think of a lion as murdering a gazelle or something like that. In order for normativity or the moral law to make sense at all, people have to have become reasonable, they have to become rational, they have to have reached some sort of level, let's say. And the state is critical in making them that way. So it grounds, without the state, there is no normativity. That sounds right
3: but I'm sorry I'm back a little bit at the interpretation of the state of nature which is I agree that he equates the state with an act of reason but I didn't get at all that in the state of nature that there is no reason by individuals in fact it's an act of so reason it's page
2: 196 so hence as long as people are deemed to live under the government of nature alone The person who does not yet know reason or does not yet have a habit of virtue lives by the laws of appetite alone with the same supreme right as he who directs his life by the laws of reason. So he associates the state of nature just with living by appetite.
3: But that still doesn't say that people don't have reason. It just means that they don't have government. And the living of life and
2: the use of moral law. Yeah, it says does not yet know reason.
3: Yes, one category doesn't know reason, but the people who have reason without government, live just as people who don't have reason. They are in a state of only being ruled by appetite. There is no moral law whether you're reasonable or not reasonable in that state. Agreed. Okay, and so you can have plenty of people that have reason, but there is no such thing as moral law in the state of nature.
1: Right, but even though there's no moral law, there is still a way that reason would direct you to be if you had it. So really, you could say that there are two sources of normativity. The one that he explicitly says, which is the state, whatever the sovereign, you know, whether it's a a legislative body of a democracy or a monarch, whatever the sovereign says is good is in fact good. I think that's what Hobbes actually says and what he means. But as soon as Spinoza says that following Hobbes, he kind of wants to hedge his bets and say, well, of course, there must be some way that we can criticize, not as subjects of the king, but as external observers looking at a particular king, we should be able to say that some kings are bad kings and some kings are good kings. So there must be some way of talking about the difference between goodness and badness that doesn't just rely on the contingency of what a particular ruler says. And that is, Spinoza thinks, is you have to turn and look at what reason actually tells you. It's just that as a matter of fact in the way that legislation works, Because the mass of people are not going to be reasonable enough to sort of get the moral law in the abstract. So you need society to enforce it. And it might not even be just, you can't have society saying, you must be reasonable. So in fact, they use religion to get at this basic love thy neighbor.
0: But that doesn't preclude the possibility of reason in the state of nature. In fact, the whole point of what happens in the state of nature is that individual things want to both come into existence and preserve their existence. And that natural law is the law of reason, that the reasonable course of action is to try to preserve your existence, and that's what individuals do in the state of nature.
1: He doesn't call that the law of reason, because even animals do that, and they don't have reason.
2: Yeah, because to do what's reasonable is to do what's good for you. And I think, Mark, there's a distinction between good and right. The sovereign doesn't make things good by saying they're good. He makes things right by saying they're right, and those two things are distinct. So Spinoza uses the word beneficial a lot, and he says, yes, you could be living under a tyrant, and their decrees could be contrary to what's good. They could be contrary to the way that reason would tell you to live that's beneficial for you. But I think what you're trying to get at is that everything in nature is living by the law, the law of nature. And reason is the thing that we use to identify the laws of nature when we do science or something like that. For nature has given them nothing else but appetite and has denied them the power of living on the basis of sound reason. And consequently, they're no more obliged to live by the law of a sound mind than a cat is by the laws of a lion's nature. Just want to get a sense in which he pretty explicitly says he identifies being in a state of nature with living by appetite and not being capable of living by reason. Once you start living by reason, you are social. You've already left the state of nature.
0: Okay. I'm not sure how much hangs on this. So this is political treatise, chapter two, section seven. But that man, like other beings, as far as in him lies, strives to preserve his existence, no one can deny. But the freer we conceive man to be, the more we should be forced to maintain that he must of necessity preserve his existence and be in possession of his senses, as anyone will easily grant me. Now, he's talking here about liberty and freedom and so forth. This is a difficult section, but it's it said, And so a man can by no means be called free because he is able not to exist or not to use his reason, but only insofar as he preserves the power of existing and operating according to the laws of human nature. The more, therefore, we consider man to be free, the less we can say that he can neglect to use his reason or choose evil in preference to good and so on. So we conclude that it is not in the power of any man always to use this reason, always to be at the highest pitch of human liberty, and yet that everyone always, as far as in him lives, strives to preserve his own existence. So the preservation of your own existence is an aspect of using your reason. If we go back and we think back to episode 24, but also what we talked about last time, about existence and perfection, and the coming into being, and things that existing, having more perfection, and that God being perfect, and us connecting with God through the use of reason. We use our reason, even in the state of nature, to preserve our own existence. The challenge for us is that we recognize that we only have as much power as we are able to muster ourselves, and that we have to join with, well, that we're not always able to preserve our reason because we're subject to our appetitive desires, but also that other people are. So it is reasonable to exit the state of nature and come into society with others for self-preservation.
2: Despite the passage I read where he explicitly says people can't use reason in a state of nature and don't know it, he talks a lot in a lot of different sections about how even in society most people are just not reasonable that's why you need revelation to make them obedient they're never going to know god through reason if we're talking about some like more basic sense of being able to calculate yeah i think your point is a good one but the whole self-preservative thing every animal does that too and i don't think he would call animals reasonable and i think again when he's thinking of humans in a state of nature he's thinking of them as animals as we are before we Become encultured. That's what the thought experiment is meant to do. It's meant to strip us of all the things that we think of as uniquely human. Culture, society, law, self-consciousness.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get that. I don't think it's a thought experiment in the same way like Rawls. I think this is you know much more in the vein. It's like you said Hobbes and Locke. So if we think about those guys, right, the thought experiment, if you will, about the state of nature for Hobbes and Locke is we're trying to gain some kind of security. Or we're trying to enter into an arrangement with the other party. And the issue is that if it's just me and just you and we're entering into a contract, I can't trust you to keep your promise. And so we need the authority of the state. We need a third person, a judge, who has the power to enforce our contract with each other. And that's the motivation to get out of the state of nature. Otherwise, there is no motivation. and. In Spinoza, he has a slight twist on it where he's saying, it's not that we're trying to contract with individuals and we're seeking an external power to enforce that contract. It's that we recognize that we will never be secure in the state of nature because we have a limited power on our own and that the only way, the only reasonable way out of the state of nature is to try to come together in society where we will sacrifice our own individual power, but we'll gain the security of Knowing that we won't be set upon by any other individual who's more powerful than us because of the arrangement of the state. And so it's his way of getting out of the state of nature by using reason. And I think that's important. So we're talking
2: about border areas
0: now and, and a chicken and an egg problem. In reality, it's a spectrum. It's
2: not like there's just reasonable human beings and irrational animals. And the thought experiment blurs that. So at some point, yeah, the whole reason we form a society is because we see that it is more beneficial than the state of nature and to see what is beneficial and in our true interests requires reason. That is critical in Spinoza.
1: Yeah.
3: One little tweak to what Seth just said. In the state of nature it's important that everybody has the same amount of power. So it's absolutely right that you there is a benefit, a recognized benefit in gathering together so that you can have both security and the possibility of flourishing mainly because it's so uncertain but it does seem to leave open the possibility not desirable for everybody in general but certainly possibly desirable for someone who wanted to remain a sovereign to be the one and only sovereign and have power over everybody else if they could he doesn't talk about that that much but that seems to be not desirable by everybody
2: but certainly but it wouldn't be to his benefit right so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be to his benefit for sure be to his yes. good even if he thought it was
3: he be in spinoza or he be in the king
2: no the guy is going to be the king yeah so it's good to be the king or it's good to be a tyrant well not if you're attuned to what is truly good for you by virtue of reason that's just another person living by appetite
3: Yeah, it wasn't clear to me that he was making a very strong argument for that, for the tyrant not being a tyrant. The argument that he makes for that has to do with the fragility of that endeavor for the tyrant and the things that are, especially for a tyrant, a bad king, the danger to them and the limits on that power, like preventing a ruler from becoming a tyrant. Spinoza clearly prefers democracy as the highest form of government, but it doesn't seem to me that he makes a very strong argument that in going from the state of nature, that you wouldn't just be a monarch with all the power. There's certainly nothing to keep you from doing that.
1: You know, we see in Plato something like if you're a tyrant, then it's bad for your soul to be a tyrant. Yeah. He doesn't go that way. I don't think it's more just bad because you're going to get deposed pretty quickly. Yes.
2: Well, (laughs) well, no, Now you could be a good monarch. So, we go, we leave the state of nature for a society because it's in our interest.
0: Which is a reasonable thing to do. And that could be a
2: monarchy, that could be a democracy, that could be any form of government. Any form of government is better than the state of nature. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm not, I'm going to be the monarch. I think that's a different sort of decision.
1: Right. That's not his concern. Yeah. Once he's sketched out why we would get in a society in the first place, then he thereafter gives a lot of space to what makes for a stable society. Mm-hmm. And part of it, You know, the reason he's bringing this up at all is because religion has to be there as a, again, it's the universal religion. It's not a particular religion. In fact, if it is a particular religion that then punishes minority elements who are not of that religion, that's bad. That causes schisms within society. But he thinks you could have the universal religion, just the love thy neighbor. This is very much like Burke, thinking that you have to have not just good laws, but you have to have a cultural undergirding to keep people in check. And so that's part of it. And if you are a tyrant, if the government is in any way oppressive, then that's just going to create the seeds of rebellion. You're not going to create the seeds of rebellion except among a few assholes. If the big law that you're trying to put down is, you must love your neighbor, and I'm going to sort of give you in broad outlines what that means. That's not something that people are going to rebel against, he thinks.
3: In this sort of universal religion, did you guys feel like he was after having talked so much against theocracy then some level this is a kinder gentler theocracy
2: why would you say that because he subordinates religion to the sovereign well if he subordinates religion to the sovereign that's true and he argues against priests ever having any political power he- yes
3: this is exactly why i'm saying that is that the sovereign becomes the one who has ultimate authority over all religious matters so i'm just trying to see Because of the, especially what Mark was just saying, the role of this sort of universal religion, this sort of kinder, gentler religion, that at some level isn't the sovereign who is the final arbiter really undergirding a sort of minimalist form of theocracy. Because they are the ultimate sovereign as granted by God. The only ruler who is endorsed by God is the one who has the power.
0: Why do you say they're endorsed by God?
3: Yeah, I don't. Because he does say they're endorsed by God. That's the only criteria under
2: which they have sovereign power. I thought he said the agreement. God requires us to observe the agreement with the sovereign. I didn't remember the Page
1: 215 I have here, chapter 17. Ordinarily, monarchical power results from God's decree, with this remaining hidden from the monarch himself. Whereas in the case of that of the Hebrews, the monarchy was in a certain manner ruled, or should have been ruled, by God's decree, which was revealed only to the monarch. He's just saying in passing, while talking about ancient Israel, that, yeah, of course there's a divine right of kings. (laughs) Of course God is the one who, you know, because of course you would think that since God devises everything, then there is a grand plan. You know, he has to have some answer to the problem of evil. And it's not the same one that Leibniz gives or something, but it's still the person in charge is in charge for a reason, right? It has God's
0: seal of approval. Chapter 3 of Tractatus Politicus, section 2. From chapter 2, section 15 of the TPP, it is clear that the right of the supreme authorities is nothing else than simple natural right, limited indeed by the power not of every individual, but of the multitude, which is guided, as it were, by one mind. That is, as each individual in the state of nature, so the body and mind of a dominion have as much right as they have power.
1: Right. So, usually when people argue for the divine right of kings, in other words, for the fact that God approves that this is the king, that's supposed to be a justification. And you can't actually use that. That's not the way right works for Spinoza.
3: So, on page 239, justice and charity, I must therefore now show, can only receive the force of law and command via authority of the state. And then I will easily be able to conclude, since the right of government belongs only to the sovereign authorities, that religion has the force of law exclusively by decree of those who possess the right to exercise government. It follows that God has no special kingship over men except through those that exercise government.
2: Yeah, that just means religion can't make people be nice to each other, but governments that can punish you can force you to be nice to each other.
1: And that's another way of stating that there's no God-given natural law that then we should pay attention to. This is getting at The division, I like the way you put it, Wes, earlier, the division between good on the one hand and right on the other hand, that normally in ethics, we assume that those are just two sides of the same coin, that if something is good, then it is right for you to do it or right for it to be or whatever. But he really wants to divide those. And so there really are two origins of normativity in his story, Mm -hmm. one of which comes out of the dictates of reason, which ultimately are playing on the self interest of every single element, but he thinks that the ultimate self interest of every single element of creation is to be in harmony with the rest of creation. And that's what being reasonable really makes you realize is that you should behave well. You should join together in a state with others. You should take care of the environment. You should do, you know, whatever it is. And love thy neighbor itself. Exactly. Can come from the natural light
2: of reason. Most people can't get there using reason, they need the revelation, but that's the
1: reasonable conclusion. But so it seems weird to say that ethics is divorced, so that we can say that, what you've just said, that's what ethics is. But that's divorced from right. Mm -hmm. And of course, we understand the difference between moral right and legal right. And I guess what he's saying partially is, it would have been better, I think, for him to just say, you know, like Mill does later, that there is no such thing as moral right. You know, you could talk about ethics and then you could talk about rights as something that a government establishes. And Spinoza doesn't want to go that far. He still uses this weird combination terminology. Just the fact that he says, in the state of nature, as much power as you have, that's as much right. Yeah. Why not just call it
2: power? Why use the word right? He's just talking about, yeah, power.
3: And yeah, so he's Thrasymachus. makes
2: right. And yeah, exactly. Well, he's a Plato-Thrasymachus, he's an Aristotle-Thrasymachus hybrid. Explain the reference to Thrasymachus, just
3: because folks... So Thrasymachus is one of the characters in the Republic. He makes the first argument with Socrates regarding the origin of justice, and Thrasymachus says justice is just whatever the will of the stronger is. So that is, whoever has the power decides what justice is, and that's pretty much verbatim what Spinoza says. With the twist that Spinoza has, which... Wes is referring to the Aristotle hybrid is that if you, as a reasonable human being, you will act virtuously and understand what is good for you and will understand that we ought to be kind to our neighbors and so forth. And that will, by following the dictates of reason and being what we ought to be as revealed by reason, we will live just, harmonious lives.
1: It just seems that ethical norms are giving us two different potentially conflicting directives. So if you're in a society that is run by an evil person who's commanding you to go to war and to hurt people, and you might think that the commands of reason are I should be peaceful, I should never hurt anyone, but on the other hand, it is in my interest to be in society, it is always better to be in any society, no matter how terrible, exactly. than to be in the state of nature. So I've compared this to our Confucius episode recently, where Confucius is a very hierarchical view. You should always be deferential to authority. But what happens if authority is being foolish? Well, yeah, you should argue. This is why Spinoza thinks it's important to have freedom of speech. You should argue that this is actually the good, but you can't do so to such a degree that it will be seditious against the state. You need to be very careful. You need to give your advice, but if they're going to go ahead and do what they're going to do, They're the boss. They're the ones in charge. So again, it would be better if you were in a democracy and you could actually put your vote behind your opinion, but whatever the situation is, even in a democracy, if you lose the vote, too bad. Like you have to go along because again, you're choosing the lesser of two evils to go along with the bad government than to be seditious. Yeah. The way he puts it is that people's safety, their security
2: is the supreme law to which all, this is chapter 19, all other laws, both human and divine must be accommodated. So to be pious, you have to actually observe the public interest first. If you're contradicting the public interest, which means disobeying the sovereign, then you're no longer pious because the sort of fundamental commandment is to preserve the state, is to do nothing that will interfere with the existence of the state. And we saw the similar thing in Crito as well, by the way, right? Socrates, no matter how absurd the law, no matter how bad it
0: is, we must obey. But he has a governor on that. Say more, Seth. So when you're an individual in the state of nature, you are fully within your natural rights to do whatever you want. And as much as you have in your power, that is your right. So you can agree with people or not. You can break promises. You can do whatever. You're limited only by your power, except, and he doesn't say this quite explicitly, but it's very similar to Locke, where one of the things you're not permitted to do as far as your natural rights is you're not permitted to, for example, commit suicide, right? Preserving your existence is kind of like a natural imperative. It's implied by having this natural right. So, okay, fast forward, we enter into dominion, commonwealths with others because we recognize that sacrificing some of our individual power is better because once we're part of a collective, We have much more power collectively than I do individually, and I'm actually much more secure that way. So then the Commonwealth itself, he says this, at least in the political treatise, it acts as if it is of one mind. And so the Commonwealth has to be reasonable in the same way that individuals are reasonable. It has the same right of natural law to enter into agreements with other commonwealths or not break those agreements. And as long as it can fight and defend itself, that's great. But what it cannot do is commit suicide. It cannot do things that are detrimental to itself. So the governor, for an individual in the state who says, any state is better than being in the state of nature. But if the actions of the supreme authority, whether it's a democracy or a monarch or an aristocracy, ultimately result in weakening or undermining or threatening the stability, and the perseverance of the state, then the individuals have a right to act. Right.
2: If the sovereign loses its power, it loses its right.
0: Correct. So just as a
1: general point, when he raises promise-keeping to start with, he just said, look, we kind of think that promise-keeping is a basic form of moral expression or something, but really the law of nature is that we will do whatever we think is best for us whatever we see to be good.
2: It's whatever we desire, whatever we want. Well, whatever, the lesser of evils, or whatever, he, he talks about the lesser of evils.
1: Exactly. So you really can't make promises, in a sense, because if things, in some future date, if circumstances change, and it becomes more beneficial for you to break the promise, you will do that. And so that's what you're talking about in terms of why you would eventually rebel against a state, is because it could actually get to that point. In fact, I would even make an argument that that could be used on Spinozic grounds to defend suicide. If things are really bad enough that <laughs> it would be a better deal for you to kill yourself, in other words, on utilitarian grounds, you're going to be suffering for the rest of your existence, whatever. I don't
0: know, man. He's, he's got that religious strain, both Judaism and mainstream Christianity. Suicide is not an option.
1: I'm just saying this is, you could make a Spinozic argument. I don't think he does.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Seth is probably right that the idea that we have the right to do anything we want to do is derived from the natural tendency towards self-preservation. And we do all those things for the sake of self-preservation. If there's a way to fit suicide in a fancy way into the concept of self-preservation, then that maybe. But this whole idea of agreement is really interesting because he seems to be saying that agreements only... Have force if they're in our interest. Like what gives an agreement outside of state enforcement of agreements outside of laws and contracts? What gives them any force? This is sort of another example of him taking a normative thing and sort of like breaking it down into a natural force. Like, well, the force is just the psychological motivation provided by self interest. And it's not that we can enter into agreements. It's just that. The only force they have is based in self-interest as opposed to some moral or legal notion.
3: I mean, is it part of that that he sees that self-interest is reasonably arrived at and that it will be the force of argument based upon self-interest will be persuasive to other people because of their own reason regarding self-interest? So they'll be able to understand it
2: even if they don't like it. You're talking about the state of nature now, that particular agreement. Establishing society, sorry.
3: Yes, I I think it's true there in establishing society, but I think it bleeds over into all other cases because as we were discussing, that even in a case of society, the regulator on the power of the sovereign is whether or not people are giving him that power, whether they're ceding the sovereign the right, whether it's a group or not. And If that ceases to be the case, then they will lose that power. And so that's part of the regulation to prevent us from having tyrants is in their self-interest, they will want to
2: preserve themselves. So what he does say is that if they're smart, they won't. Yeah,
3: If they govern according to their own self-interest and their own reasonability.
2: He says if everyone were reasonable enough to see the advantages of a state. Yeah. Their concern would only be for the good of the state, and you wouldn't need any enforcement. You wouldn't need any laws. People would just do it yes. naturally.
3: If all men were angels, no government would be necessary.
2: Yeah. But people are basically operate on the pleasure principle and according to passions. So you need force. Most people are not going to be reasonable. They're not going to live by reason. And you just, you have to force them. With the state, we transferred into a realm in which reason can operate in some global sense, and there are going to be some reasonable people, philosophers, let's say, and, they're, <laughs> and the state itself, yeah, I know, it's, it should be left, and the state itself could function reasonably. It's sort of reason can be operationalized in the workings of the state, but still, most people are just going to be completely irrational, and everything that they do is going to be because they're going to get punished if they don't. Or you could add incentives, you know, loyalty to country. And, but they're not going to do things because, oh, hey, this, I know this is virtuous and I know being virtuous by reason I know being virtuous is what's in my best interest. They're going to do it because the basic material incentives are there, whether they're punishments or things that they gain. So this is part of why
3: I'm thinking about there being a kind of, use of religion at the very least, if not a kind of kinder gentler theocracy involved here. You know, religion is about piety and obedience. And both those features are strong features of having a stable government, where at the very least that piety is a kind of filial piety, right? Or at least love of country. And obedience is towards the sovereign. And those pieces of that part of the hebrew theocracy which he also attributes as being democratic sort of the most natural one is the part that he pulls out as putting all that power into the sovereign but being persuasive to all of the people who are not governed by reason involves leveraging the power that it seems to me that religion has over people
2: so i I think you're right in the sense that the sovereign because they can tell you that you can only be Lutherans as far as public worship goes. I mean Spinoza is going to say that privately, in your own thoughts and your own opinions, you worship God in whatever way you want. But as far as public religion, they could totally enforce a certain kind of religion. But where he objects to theocracy and he thinks this is not theocracy is in the fact that priests don't have power. And it's important to him that priests don't have power. Priests are prophets or whatever, because For the sake of self glorification and their own power, they're going to have lots of different interpretations of scripture that they take philosophically seriously, which he thinks, by the way, you know, you should never take it philosophically seriously. And that creates all these schisms that Mark mentioned, all these doctrinal battles, and it leads to discord and persecution and all the rest of it. So not a theocracy in that sense, not a theocracy. That, that's exactly right. But a theocracy in the sense of, uh, you can tell people what religion they're allowed to publicly practice, but you're not making rules about which doctrines they have to believe, or they're going to go to the stake.
3: you in particular. You're not trying to control their minds yeah. and, and what they think. And on page what? I it's the very first paragraph of the last chapter. He says, a government which seeks to control people's minds is considered oppressive. And any sovereign power appears to harm its subjects and usurp their rights when it tries to tell them what they must accept as true and reject as false, what beliefs should inspire their devotion to God. So, don't interfere what people are thinking about these things. And so, I agree. It's going too far to call him uh, advocate of theocracy. Because it's important that the priests aren't the one making the rules.
2: Really, it's kind of a separation of church and state thing where you say, you know, yeah, the church can't have any political power and the sovereign gets to dictate.
3: Yeah. Separation of church and state, freedom of speech, citizen soldiers. Sound familiar?
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. Yeah. So much of this presages some of the things that, you know, by the time we get to the Federalist Papers and the political documents, we're more uh, familiar with. We've got a lot of elements of that in here, but just the whole rhetorical bent of it is he's addressing an audience that is used to something like theocracy yeah. and arguing we should just have a little less. Like, you can't just say, no, religion should have no role. It should just be what people do by themselves and forget the, you
2: know. Well, he is in Amsterdam where supposedly you could practice any religion you liked, according to his own account. I mean, there were recent persecutions there, so it's not as simple as that. And, of course, he got himself in a lot of trouble too, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and some of the problem that he had there was that still the leaders of the Jewish community in his area had too much power, he thought, among their own people. And this is part of why society would need to take the reins on religion, is to keep the theocratic institutions for invading too much of our lives. So I would kind of compare it to the assault on individual lives that corporate America has for us now and why we might feel like, no, of course we don't want to rule by corporations, but maybe you might argue, shouldn't there be some sort of regulations or something on how employers can treat people? Well, there's something parallel, I think going on in this period of time, given the role, even in a freer, relatively free society like he was in that religious institutions were having in their lives.
3: I think it's a nice parallel to make, Mark. I was, I was, also thinking of, like, where is the Amsterdam of Iran? But uh, I think yours about the power of corporate um, uh, America. and sort of the Marxist critique at some level, right?
0: Wait, what are you guys talking about? The Amsterdam of Iran? i are talking about controlling of people's minds.
3: I was thinking of also the question of religious freedom in the context of what are the theocracies we have right now? Among them, are Islamic theocracies, right? And so, who's the Spinoza
1: of Islam? That would be useful. I mean, I I think there are many self-proclaimed
0: Spinozas of Islam. (laughs) Sure. Really? We read one of them and almost had him as a guest on the show, and perhaps will later. He's the guy I was thinking. I wouldn't say there are many Spinozas of Islam.
1: So, I'm looking forward in the second half of the discussion to hearing more, the way that uh, Wes had concluded things last time was that he felt like the applicability of the argument for free speech, I guess, you know, that that was inspiring to him even now. Whereas I, just reading more of this, felt more and more like, actually, he only advocates to free speech, like I was saying, insofar as it will not make waves politically. So reading this, you know, literally, I don't need a philosopher to inspire me. Yeah.
2: He doesn't say not make waves politically. He talks about things like treason. anything. If it's going to like explicitly undermine the state, then he puts some limits on it. Any free speech advocate puts limits on free speech.
1: Well, I would rule out a lot of what we would count as regular free speech now. Like You could not say the kind of things that late-night comics do about the president or something. That would be straight-up seditious, I think, according to Spinoza's standards. You know, according to the standards of his time, that he's, he's, he is liberal with respects to, but which are still so
2: borderline monarchy. Did you hear about Kathy Griffin in her photo shoot with Donald Trump's head, bloody, beheaded head? Hold, holding it. <laughs> I
3: only saw that she apologized for it. I didn't see actually the video.
2: It's just like, what are you trying to do here? <laughs> Other than have to apologize, maybe that's the plan. <laughs> Get some attention, apologize. And- yeah that might get her in trouble in Spinoza's time,
1: <laughs> so for instance, you could make an argument on Spinoza' grounds that we should restrict hate speech because that is a straight up attempt to dissolve the unity of the nation that if you are saying racist things, then you're creating an other category of a whole group of. People within, and so it's kind of the same as religious persecution in a way. And that would be exactly the kind of speech that he would feel comfortable putting a stop to. I don't think so. (laughs) Anyway, that's one of the ways I read Spinoza on that issue. He's much less liberal. Again, so I see this is really interesting and useful as a historical document and and like to look at the you know what influence did he have on Diderot and other people, and how did that eventually get to what ended up on our constitution and doing a kind of analysis of our political ethos that way. But I don't take direct inspiration from very much of what he has to say in that area here. Well, let's talk about that more when we come back because it seems like a good place to start. All right, so we're going to continue this conversation. You can uh, check us out next week for part two of this. We'll talk more about the universal religion, I'm sure, and various aspects of the political apparatus that he recommends. Or you could hear right now, by becoming a partially examined life citizen, get the unbroken ad-free version. Never hear a commercial on this podcast again. (laughs) Woohoo! I got to sound more cheery somehow. (laughs) See you soon.